Welcome back to the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, assisted listening devices, if you need them, are available in the back right corner. Uh, just see me if you need one. Uh, please turn off all cell phones and other electronics, alarms, vibrations, and uh, refrain from writing or recording during the evening program. That can also be distracting as well. A break will not take place between the talk and the question and answer sessions, so please uh, remain in the hall as much as you can. And uh, there will be a question and answer session at the end. And sometimes we pass around a microphone uh, when somebody needs to ask a question. Uh, tea is available in the dining hall downstairs after the talk. And after the talk is over, if you just please remove the front row and the back row of cushions and then move the back row chairs up to the, back, the new back row of cushions, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. I want to share a few program announcements. It's a lot this time. Um, the People of Color Sangha will take place on Friday, September 9th. The Little Buddha Sangha will take place on Sunday, September 11th. Lila Kate Wheeler will begin the Way of Awareness and Introduction to Insight Meditation Practice Group beginning Monday, September 12th. Tea will be offered after the beginners drop-in on Tuesday, September 13th. Next week's Dharma talk will be given by Lila Kate Wheeler and is titled Equanimity, Lost and Found. Uh, Madeline Klein will begin the Fathomless Treasures practice group on Thursday, September 15th. The Beginner's Insight Meditation Workshop with Madeline Klein will take place on Saturday, September 17th. To learn more about our upcoming programs and our schedule, please visit cambridgeinsight.org. Uh, tonight, George Mumford will offer the Dharma talk this evening. George Mumford, George Mumford has taught meditation since 1986 in a range of environments. He's a sports psychology consultant and a personal and organizational development consultant. George currently works with coach Phil Jackson and has consulted on each of the NBA championship teams that Jackson coached. George is a sought-after public speaker at both business and athletic conferences, nationally and internationally, and is the author of The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. Thank you, George. So good evening, and I want to welcome you to Broadway, <laughs> even though it's 331 Broadway Street, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. How many people are new to meditation? Okay, thanks. How many people are new to the center? Okay, great. Thank you. So I apologize. I, I have some, some, some folks that have been training with me, and, and they have having trouble finding parking. Of course, that's not new for you folks because you know how it is around there. But they're not from around here, so they're, uh, they're getting uh, an orientation, you might say. So anyway, it's interesting because I, I, I signed up to do these talks, and I didn't really know what I was going to talk about. When they asked me eight months ago, whenever, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. But I decided to talk about cultivating happiness, and it's really... Um, the reason I'm doing that is because, for a lot of reasons, because I think we need to do it. I think when I first came around thinking about my own practice and coming to the meditation center, that when you came in here, it was like this grim, I was that lone warrior, you sit through pain and it's not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be happy or you're supposed to be solemn and that sort of thing. And that is so ridiculous from my own experience. It took me years, decades even, to figure out that, dude, you're making this way too complicated. It's really about, 
it's really about the now. Come and have a, have a seat. It's really about the now. And it's just to dispel the myth of, of, this, of what happiness is about and how we pursue happiness. But believe it or not, even if I didn't have this conversation about cultivating happiness, that's what we're doing. Come on in. Have a seat. Um, that's what we're doing. We're cultivating happiness. But if we don't know we're cultivating happiness, we're probably not cultivating happiness. We're probably just focused on what, what went wrong instead of focusing on on uh, the whole, the whole thing, but specifically in this culture, in our culture, uh, those are those are um, they're going to be coming. Those are those are um, reserved, so you'll have to find another seat. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so the idea is just to really understand that there's an easier, softer way to approach the practice, and it's interesting because if if you study the, the teachings, that's what it's saying. You know, in, in this tradition, we talk about the Noble Eightfold Path, and I know people really get confused when we say the eight this and the seven that, but the reality is that the Buddha taught one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And so we have to understand what, what that entails. And what that entails is the idea of we talk about wisdom, and we talk about morality, and we talk about the threefold training, and we talk about um, what I call mental development. Some people call it concentration. I think that confuses us. So I call it mental, mental training. So the mental training, of course, in this culture, you know a lot about mindfulness, right? Everything is mindfulness this, mindfulness that, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based CBT, mindfulness eating, Mindfulness, uh, mindfulness. It's just mindfulness. And I think what, what, is, what gets lost in that is, and even in the teaching, as long as I've been coming here, we get so hyper-focused on sitting in silence that we're only dealing with part of the training, not the whole training. So to eradicate suffering, it's more than just being in a relaxed state. It has to do with being able to, to pluck out or, or to get to the roots of suffering. And in order to do that, you need wisdom. And so when we talk about wisdom here, I'll give you a short uh, definition of it. Wisdom here is having the right view. And the right view is, is seeing things as they are. It has to do with this idea of you won't see the right view if you have a mind with greed. You won't have the right view if you have a mind with aversion. You won't have right view if you have a mind that's confused or, or you know, just, just full of doubt. And so the idea here is that we meditate so that we can purify the mind and heart. So I, I, I call them both the same. And so part of that is with the right view and right intention is the part of the of the wisdom part of it. There's, there's the initial wisdom, and then there's morality, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. But basically what it's saying is non, non-harming. It's, you know, we have the precepts we talk about, not, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct conduct or wrong speech, and taking intoxicants. It's really about don't put things in the mind or, or get engaged in activities that... that that cloud 
our ability to see. They hinder our ability to be present and to see things. Does that make sense? And so the idea, so looking at it from that point of view and looking at it from right, right effort, seats over there. Good. Uh, right effort. Hey. So when you talk about the mental training or the mental discipline, we're talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And all of these things feed each other. And so just to give you a little synopsis of what mindfulness is, mindfulness is, I like to compare it, I like to give you what it is, what it feels like or what it looks like. Mindfulness is not forgetting what? Not forgetting the present moment, not forgetting what we're doing. Really that simple. That's one aspect of mindfulness. Another part, or another way of saying that is steadiness of mind. Another part is, of mindfulness is, is what we call presence of mind. And what that really is, that's mirror mind. It's just reflecting what's there. And I have a little something here I want to read. It's, it's about wonder, and it gives you an idea. Because mindfulness is about being in a state of relaxed receptivity, where we're just observing things without uh, interrupting what's, being, what's there or trying to make things... Um, or, or trying to interpret what's going on rather than letting it speak to itself. So this guy, his name is Eugene Fink, and he talks about uh, wonder. What, is, what does this mean? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken-for-grantedness of our everyday reality. Wonder is the unwillingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. So when I talk about presence of mind and mirror mind, it's just letting things speak to us. But we don't really do that. We interpret what it means. Even now, I guarantee you, as you're listening to me, I would encourage you to act like you don't know anything. And because what we tend to do is we tend to compare what we're hearing to what we already know. And what mindfulness is saying is you've got to have enough trust to just let things speak to you in their own language and try to listen to things as if you never heard them before, without an agenda, without trying to figure out where I'm going or, or what's being said compared to what we already know. So it's this, this humility, this, this vulnerability to just let things speak to themselves. So you can see why this is very difficult practice or a challenging practice sometimes. So it's the Steadiness of mind, you know, not forgetting the here and now, not forgetting what you're doing, where you're actually sitting and listening, and not like watching Survivor on TV. This is uh, active listening. That means just, to, you know, because you're going to be challenged. Because some of you worked all day, you might be tired, you might have things you have to do when you leave here, you might have had things that you did before you got here that you're not satisfied with, and, you, and you're ruminating about that. It takes a lot of courage just to sit here and just allow things to speak for themselves. And so that's, the, that's the, um, what we call presence of mind. And then there's uh, remembering. Remembering what? Remembering what is skillful, what works, what doesn't work. It's really that simple. So it's like steadiness of mind, be here now. Uh, the present moment is the only moment we have. Presence of mind, just letting things speak to us so that we're listening. 
without an agenda, without interrupting what is being presented through one of the sense doors, whether it's, it's a sound or an image or a thought or a smell or a taste. It doesn't matter. Can we just hear it? And, of course, in this location, there will be fire engines and all kinds of things going through. And it's interesting. You could be sitting here, and, that, and it could just be a sound, or it could be that's interrupting my meditation. We can perceive it as something, or somebody comes in late, or somebody moves, and we can get irritated, or we can just notice that it's just a sound. We're just listening. We don't have to interpret anything. So presence of mind, steadiness of mind, remembering what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and this is part of what we'll be getting into. And then the fourth aspect is, is the bare essentials, or what are the laws, what are the principles involved in what we're doing. So what you're really talking about is mindfulness that's supported by right effort. And I'll talk more about that, but that's the effort to keep the mind wholesome, to abandon unwholesome mind states like, like the greed or the aversion or confusion, knowing how to abandon them, knowing how to prevent those mind states from arising, and that's part of this practice of cultivating happiness by cultivating happiness because the, we can only think at one thing, of one thing at a time, and if we have happiness in the mind, there's no room for anxiety or worry or restlessness. So we have to understand that, that, that right effort, we're making the right effort. So the effort is like a guitar. If you, if, you too, if you try too hard, it doesn't work, and if you don't try hard enough, it works. And so in my book, The Mindful Athlete, I talk about the idea of effort being supported by steadiness of mind. And so some of us are really, really kind of uh, laid back. And if we're too laid back and too chilled, uh, we, we could be bored or we could space out. We have dullness of mind. So it ha we have to balance that with effort, so we have to bring more energy. But then there's others of us that are so energetic that there's no steadiness of mind. And so part of the mindfulness is to know those things and to know how to self-regulate, to bring the energy down when it's too high and, and to raise the energy when it's too low. And so mindfulness, even though mindfulness helps that, you need to make the right effort to be mindful. And then if you're mindful, you'll have steadiness of mind. You'll be here now. And then there's the big, the big one is, you know, when I'm giving you the essentials or the wisdom, what is it we're doing? What's the right idea? What's the concept? Some of us are so smart that we're cynical because we know everything. There's no way this is going to work. And what is called for there is a balancing of, of what I call faith or trust. And then there's other, others of us that have so much trust that we don't need any evidence. So we get Pollyanna-ish. But the idea here is I'm offering you things and it's like, okay, have faith and trust or at least have a willing suspension of disbelief means, I don't know, maybe it's true, because this is what this practice is about. It's about getting the information, doing the wise reflection, or using the intellect or, or rational thinking. But ultimately, we want to have a direct experience or intuitive knowing. That's what it's about. There's these teachings, there's these laws, but then it's about, okay, see if it's true in your experience. So it has to be experienced subjectively. And so that's, that's what, so we talk about mindfulness, but mindfulness alone is not enough. It needs the support of, of wisdom. So you have mindfulness and clearly knowing the wisdom working together, but at the same time, in order to be mindful, in order to see what's happening, you have to have the right effort, and this is a big part of what we're doing 
tonight and the steadiness of mind. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to throw that out and just talk about that. So one of the right efforts is cultivating wholesome mind states. So how do we bring happiness into being? And then once it gets into being, how do we maintain it or perfect it? So I'm going to cut the chase and don't go into the hindrances and all that, but just talk about happiness. And it's interesting because the guy down the road here, Sean Accor, he wrote several, two books I know of. One is called The Happiness Advantage. How many people have heard of that? Okay, and so in this book, The Happiness Advantage, he's saying it's an advantage, and I'll talk about that. But he also talked about the research he's done over the years, and, and you can predict how somebody's going to perform a task or perform a job. There's three factors involved. One factor is optimism levels. That people in a high optimism level, which is kind of happiness, a positive mind state, that it enhances our ability to do things. So there's the optimism level. The second thing is social support. And part of the social support is what we're doing here. I like to break social support down as good friends. And in this tradition, good friends is somebody like me, a teacher or other fellow um, travelers of the path, and talking about having what we call suitable conversations having conversations in NLP, they talk about uh, how to do something, not why didn't that work, because in our culture, we're very good at pathology. We're very good at what's wrong. We don't necessarily know how to focus on what's right. So does that make any sense? And so we really want to, to understand that that's what we want to do. So it's the high levels of positivity or optimism. He calls it positive genius. How do we cultivate that? And that's what we'll talk about tonight, but also social support in terms of good friends and community, and they've done research. When, when people go off and do these trainings, if they go back to their reference group and they stop doing the training, they will forget everything. Because, you know, we have mirror neurons, which means whatever we're around, we mirror it. So our environment, who we are around, especially our self-talk, has an impact. Is that good company? Is that company helping us to be present, or is it helping us to space out? Because that's how pathology works. It doesn't want to see what's there. It, it avoids, it's an, you know, it denies. It makes stuff up. So the brain does. When it looks at things, if, if there's nothing there, it just puts things in. So we really need to understand how, how this mind-body process works. And so the third thing is this idea of seeing stress as a challenge. And it's interesting, back in 1993, when, when I first started working with the Chicago Bulls and I went there to, to teach them how to deal with the stress of success, they were in full-blown crisis because Michael Jordan retired. And they were known as Michael Jordan and the Jordan Airs, so what are they going to do? And so instead of going there and dealing with that, I had to deal with this, this full-blown crisis. And what I suggested to them is that crisis has two meanings. One meaning is danger, which we know. The other meaning is, op is opportunity. So looking at possibility, not on necessity. And so they did that, and they were able to grow and do pretty well without him. And then when he came back, eventually they, they won three more championships. So I think that was that, that you could see. So they had the social support. They had the good friend, which me and other, other teachers and coaches, you know, helping them uh, to live according to the way things are, and so we have teachings or laws, 
And so here we talk, we call them the four virtues. So there's good friends, teachers and people uh, support the Sangha. And then there's the teachings. And then there's wise reflection. So I want to expand the definition of meditation. A lot of times we think meditation is just being in silence and some people call it navel gazing or whatever. That's part of it. But a big part of it is how we are thinking and relating to our experience all day long. Are we reacting to things or are we responding to things based on our values, based on our ideals? And so this is what this practice is about. It's about observing how this mind-body process works and how do we cultivate a wholesome state of mind that allows us to see things clearly and that our mind becomes our friend and not our worst enemy. And I remember this, this um, priest said he went in the room to be alone and all his enemies were there. That's what we, you notice that people that used to get on us and say things, criticize us, they're in there. I call it the negative committee. So, and some people call it ants, automatic negative thoughts. So the idea here is to start to see how do we change. We can change those thoughts and we can see what, what they are and how they're affecting us. Does that make sense? And so the idea here is let's talk about happiness because happiness is obviously um, some a practice that helps us get into those high optimism levels. Now, the interesting thing is, this is what I thought. I thought that I had to, you know, uh, play, win a championship, be in the NBA, or get the right job, or the right whatever, to be happy. The research says it's the opposite, that you're happy first, then the success comes. That's interesting. And another thing I'll throw out at you, 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 90%, not 10, 90. So that, puts, that means we have a lot more control than we think. And I like to talk about us as having that masterpiece inside. As, uh, as um, Michelangelo was asked, how do you create these masterpieces out of these blocks of marble? And what did he say? He said... All I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already there. So these practices we're engaged in is a way of chipping away and allowing what's already there to express itself. Make any sense? So let's talk about, let's have this happiness conversation. So normally I talk a lot and I don't have notes, but I think it's good to have notes sometimes because we can talk about the sources of which this comes from. So this is part of the wisdom piece where we're getting the information. So Sean Accord's definition of happiness has positive emotions, which include joy, gratitude, serenity, interest, hope, pride, amusement, inspiration, awe, and love, or positivity. How are positive emotions helpful? Positive emotions flood our brains with dopamine and serotonin, chemicals that not only make us feel good, dial up the learning centers of our brains to higher levels. They help us organize new information, keep that information in the brain longer, and retrieve it faster later on. That's mindfulness. What mindfulness does. When we're mindful, we remember and we can recall. So, and the word that jumped out at me was dopamine. That's where the word dope comes from. And having been addicted to drugs, I, I can tell you, this is a nice high. I don't have to pay for it in terms of other than effort. Um, and that's my personal journey went from 
and, and, and I was reading this book by Napoleon Hill, and he talks about having a burning desire and faith. Well, my burning desire when I first came around here is what I call AOF, method of motivation, ass on fire. But what happened after having the gift of desperation and really going into learning and wanting to know how this mind-body, how my mind-body works, but how everybody's mind-body works and how to do this thing called life in a way where I'm pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. And so it's really, how do I want to say it? So now it's more about the joy of discovery. And he's saying that right there. He's saying when you know, we have positive emotions, it not only helps us feel good, but we learn better. And because we learn better, we get to a point where we learn just for learning's sake. Just being in the process. We get in this process, and that's evolution, believe it or not. The things are always changing. And the thing about happiness is the only time you can be happy is now. So it's silly to think I'm going to be happy six months from now when I get that job or when I get that relationship, whatever it is. That's silly. All this time now we could be happy and then make sure that that happens. So even if we don't get it, guess what? It's like what Joseph Campbell talked about following your bliss. If you don't get it, you get bliss. So if you're happy, who, who cares? <laughs> if you got, you know, because you might not even know what you want. Or you might be, if you're like me, you might limit what you can do or what you can be because of self-limiting beliefs. But if we're just doing it and we're in a process where we're growing and evolving and being happy now, why not take that one? That's what I'm doing. And so that's what I want to offer here to talk about this happiness um, stuff. And then when positive emotions is called the broaden, broadening and build uh, you know, technique. It says when positive emotions broaden our scope of cognition and behavior, they not only make us more creative, they help us build more intellectual, social, and physical resources we can rely upon in the future. This enhances our ability to be resilient, a strong self-efficacy belief in the face of stress, change, and illusion of separateness. And so I like to, sometimes when I worked in a stress reduction clinic, I used to talk about stress as being, this is where we were, this is where we are, and this is where we want to be, and there's that stress, and that we feel stress when we perceive the demands that are being made on us more than the resources we have. So if you're building resources or making deposits, when you write a check, it's not going to bounce. And that's the way we, got, we can look at it. And so this happiness um, process or cultivating happiness is really important. What are the practices? Well, believe it or not, one of the main practices is what you're doing, meditation. Here's what it says, the research. Studies show that the minutes right after meditating, we experience feelings of calm and contentment, as well as heightened awareness and empathy. The research shows that regular meditation can permanently rewire the brain to raise levels of happiness, lower stress, even improve immune functioning. Imagine that. So that's proof, and it's, there's all sorts of things. Um, study after study shows that happiness precedes important outcomes and indicators of thriving. Individuals who are primed, meaning scientists help evoke a certain mindset or emotion before doing an experiment or a task or performing to feel either amusement or contentment can think of a larger and wider array of thoughts and ideas than individuals who have been primed to feel either anxiety or anger. Students do much better in school on tests when their brains are positive. You are much more successful at work when your brain is positive. It improves brain health, increases energy up to 31%. Who could use 31% more energy? Decreases heart disease 
by up to 30%, drops fatigue-related symptoms by 23%, decreases chances of depression by 31%. Says 90%, I said this already, 90% of your long-term happiness is determined by how your brain processes the world you find yourself in. People are in the, in the same situation. Some are happy, some are not. Happiness, scientifically, is a choice. So if we think about it, something happens to us, and then we, we can create space between stimulus and response. This is what this practice is helping us to do. We're in that space. We can choose how we're going to respond to something. And this practice is to watch us choose and to see when we choose uh, unwholesomely or when we have an unwholesome mindset and we make the wrong choice, we can learn from that, and then we can go back and we can do it again. We don't have to condemn ourselves to hell because we made a mistake. We can just say, okay, that didn't work. I, you know, I'll do better. Let's go back and let's see you know, what I can learn here. And this is what's really important. If we start to see things and we start to see that there's meaning and suffering, this is what uh, Viktor Frankl says. And Viktor Frankl, for those of you who do not know, he was a psychiatrist that was in a concentration camp, or several, and he wrote the book... Um, the book about, uh, I forget the name of it, what's it called? Man's Search for Meaning. And, and I got some of his quotes here. And when I was in graduate school, I, I was going to actually go to um, where he lived just to meet him because he, he, was real, he really helped change my life. When we, no lo- when we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And, and I know one Michael Jackson songs is looking look at the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror, that's the only person we can change. We cannot change people, places, and things, but we can, we can change ourselves if we choose and if we start to understand how do we do this. And so having happiness, just think about it. If you're cultivating happiness, then the way you see things, you meditate and you do things, it won't be such a challenge. And so it's not to say that you'll never, because every time I had this conversation, people say, well, George, you want me to be happy all the time. I did not say that. Of course you're not going to be happy all the time. But can, you under, can we understand that this, this, even when we're not happy, can we just open and allow ourselves to feel whatever we're feeling? Then at some point we can let it go and just move to the next thing. Because it's, it's, a lot of this has to do with focusing on what we want, not on what we didn't get. And that's where he said the 90% of the, the happiness comes from, from how we perceive things. If we see something as a Cursed, then it's a curse. If we see it if it's a blessing, it's a blessing. If we see the glass half full, then we have abundance. If we see the glass is half empty, then we're in survival mode and we're in scarcity. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but you can't be in survival mode and growth mode at the same time. So you're either in one or the other. And when you're in survival mode, you got the autonomic nervous system uh, secreting those. Uh, stress hormones and it affects our immune system so we just finished eating but all of a sudden all of the blood and the chemicals go to the big muscles and that food's not being digested because we're, we're primed to survival and that doesn't mean that what we perceive as a threat is real, it could be imagined and the body goes to it and so that's the idea is to understand that we can cultivate this ability to see what's right to catch ourselves, like I say, I like to say, catch ourselves doing something right, and to really understand that that 
it's the thoughts that we choose to hold in mind to become our reality. And I like to refer to the philosopher Dr. Dre and the line of his song when he says, I got my mind on money, money on my mind. That's a meditation. So what's your mind on? Whatever your mind is on, I can tell what your mind is on because that's what you'll get. Even if we don't want to admit it. And if you want to know who you are, just watch your reactions to things. That's your self-concept. Because how we see ourselves is how we behave. And so it's, this is really powerful stuff here that we're engaged in. Those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. That's a good one. So I won't, I don't know if I want to talk much more about that because there's enough research out there that says that this stuff works. But I want to talk about the practice on some level. And I don't want people to get into this ambition and try to get into uh, altered states of conscious concentration or whatever. But there's, there's what we call the jhanas when you get it fully, con when you get really concentrated. And part of it is access concentration. So what happens is, so you apply your mind, or you direct your mind to an object. At some point, the object is, you're able to sustain attention. And because we sustain attention, we have this joy or this excitation. And if we keep being mindful, keep being with it, then we get this happiness. And once we get the happiness, then we have one-pointedness. We're just totally locked in. In the sports world, we might call that the zone, being in the zone when we're just locked in, but we have these experiences, and one of the antidotes to these hindrances for the one, restlessness, restlessness and worry, is happiness. So when we're happy, we don't worry. And so that's the other thing it does. And so each, each one of those states puts the hindrances in abeyance. They don't go away. They just, they just don't have any room to operate. So when it comes to applied application of applied thought, that, that helps us when we have the two calm, when we have the sloth and torpor. That's the, that's the opposite of that. When we have sustained thought, that, that, that puts doubt in abeyance. And so and when we have the excitation, excitation or the joy, that puts hatred in abeyance. And of course, I talked about happiness and one-pointedness that, that helps us with our sensual desires. And so this is something that you could see for yourself and you'll experience it at times. So that's one of the ways that we can cultivate happiness is just letting go and letting be. You know, Ajahn Chah, the meditation master from the Thai forest tradition, he says, um, when I let go a little bit, I have a little peace. When I let go a lot, I have a lot of peace. And when I let go completely, I have complete peace. And so it's this idea of just allowing something happens, and then there's our interpretation of what it means. We're making that stuff up. We are, really. Because you could say the glass is half full, that's right. It's half empty, that's right. But how do you feel about that? How is that working out for you? That's what I like to say. For me, it's like, okay, it's really simple. It's really is, is powerful to know that we can choose how we respond to things. And Edgar Casey, he talked about this idea of relating to life in an energetic, dynamic way. So you can choose how you see, and this is Sean, of course, saying you can choose how you see something. And you always want to choose what gives, empowers you. And, and that's what this practice is about, to start to see, okay, when I do this, this happens. And then when you start to understand things, then that's the best stress reducer. The easy way to be calm is to understand what's going on. 
and understand, oh, this is how the universe works. This is how I work. This is how the brain works. This is not personal. It's not just my brain. It's everybody who's a human being. You don't get beyond being human. If you're human and something is unpleasant, you are going to have aversion. No doubt. And if it's pleasant, you're going to, have, you're going to move towards it. And if it's neither, you're going to space out. We spend a lot of time in that one, you know, between boredom and anxiety. That's where we live. <laughs> and so our ability to direct attention or to decide what goals we're going to set and what we're going to focus on, what we're going to bring, put attention to, is huge. And so I don't know how we're doing for time. I don't want to talk a lot more. I, I want to have more of a Socratic uh, back and forth. But I want to talk about, um, I have a quote here from... Titnan Han that I think is really, really important. I want to read. I had other quotes, but I didn't, didn't bring them. Okay, so here's what Titnan Han says. When we feed and support our own happiness, we are nourishing our ability to love. That's why the love means to learn the art of nourishing our happiness. Understanding someone's suffering is the best gift you can give another person, even yourself. Understanding is love's other name. If you don't understand, you can't love. And here's what I also like. He says, the most precious inheritance that parents can give their children is their own happiness. Our parents may be able to leave us money, houses, and land, but they may not be happy people. If we have happy parents, we have received the richest inheritance of all. And so what I like to do is um, just end uh, here. I mean, I could talk more, but I don't want to, I want to have more uh, back and forth. But I should probably, there's, um, there's what he calls the five research habits of happiness. Uh, random acts of kindness will help. But uh, one of the things to do is to, have, to develop an attitude of gratitude, to find three things new things each day to write down or to say aloud. And for 21 days or, or 30 days or 60, I think it takes 66 days to groove it. But if you do that, what do you think is going to happen? Just think about it rationally. If you reflect on that, what happens when you find three new things each day to focus on that you're grateful for? What do you think happens? Anybody? Pardon me? Yeah, you start training yourself to see what's right. Right now, we're doing the opposite. And so this is really simple. If you can worry, you can do this. Because when we worry, we just don't worry. We have a whole, we have a whole movie about how it's going to turn out. Not this feeling that we can see it. And, we can, and how many of you have conversations with somebody that, that you're not getting along with? And they have no idea that you're having a conversation with them. And then when you see them, that's exactly what happens. You created that. It's funny. You listen to that self-talk in there. I used to, when I used to work with, with, especially with female teams, I used to tell the young ladies, I said, the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't let me talk to your girlfriend like that. You say, George, you can't talk to her like that. But the way you're talking to yourself is way worse. Not even close. So what's up with that? So we start to understand that we, we, we have to look at the language. And if, if you, because one of the things we, we have as human beings is we have two gifts for sure. We have a mind and we have speech, besides self-awareness and the ability to self-reflect. But whatever, 
we are saying is a reflection of what's in the mind. That's a good one. So if we, if we don't like what we're hearing, we can change it. But you've got to go to the mind and, and change it. So part of this is cultivating positive mind states. Some of the mind states we talk about around here is appreciative joy. So, if, uh, so last June when Golden State Warriors lost to Cleveland, if you're a Golden State Warrior fan, you're supposed to appreciate Cleveland winning. <laughs> Why? Because that's an antidote to jealousy, envy. And loving kindness. Or you say, just like me, that person is trying to be happy, but, but they don't know how, what, how they're doing. Everybody chooses only the good on some level. They're confused about it, but they're, I don't think people say, I'm going to see how miserable I can be today. <laughs> I guess, you know, you know, we don't do that. We, 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 we want happiness. And so if we see just like me, that person wants to be happy. And if I saw things the way that person saw things, I would do the same thing then we get beyond this illusion of separateness. It's okay, oh, those people, or, or you know, that, or they deserve that because they didn't do that. Well, there's no empathy. The heart is closed down. It's like, okay, depression feels bad, no matter what the reason is or the story. Anxiety, fear. It doesn't matter what the story is. It's a feeling, and we can identify what that feels like, and we can open our heart and have empathy for other people. That's really helpful. And so we have the sympathetic joy and we have loving kindness, you know, may so-and-so be happy and, and you know, and you just want to, you know, I talk about love and blessings. Just, just relate to everybody through that. Relate to their masterpiece, the divine spark within. And so when we start to think about things that way, and then equanimity, just the ability to just be still and, and know, just to let things come and go and not be moved not move toward or away from, or just be present. But it's not, it's different. It's not the same as indifference, where we act like we don't care. It's a connection, it's an engagement, but it's, uh, you know, not having a preference. It's letting it see, like, to let things speak to us. That means, okay, how do we do that when we see our mind is creating suffering for ourselves? We usually recoil and we don't, we don't want to go in here. We got to be able to open up to it like the eye of the hurricane where there's all of that turmoil, but in the middle of it, there's blue sky and there's this ease and this peace. We have that, that place of rest inside of us. So when we can come from that and observe things from that space, then it's very different. So we train ourselves to be able to do that. So equanimity is really important. And that's why when we practice being mindful and just letting things speak for, them, to them, for themselves, we start to see connections where there weren't connections, and we start to realize that what we observe is not us. So we are not our thoughts. We are not our feelings. We are not even, we're not what we do. And we can, we can identify that and see that there's an observer, and then there's what is observed. And they're interacting. They talk about this in quantum physics. When you observe something, you change it. So think about that one. If you want things to change, just check it out. Do what Yogi Berra said. You can see a lot just by observing. It's really that simple. But we don't because it's too complicated. We got, I mean, too easy. We got complicated minds. You know, I heard this guy say common sense is not common practice. He's right. And so that's what we can do. But here's the thing. We're already doing it. A lot of this stuff, you, you've done it. What I'm suggesting is by looking at it, by focusing on it, by reflecting on it, by cultivating it, it will happen more. 
And so I think uh, that's about all I want to say about this. And so can we just have just a few moments of silence, and then we can open it up for questions. So just tuning into the body and just to the degree that you know that there's a body and it's sitting and you're breathing. So feeling the whole body as you're sitting and breathing and knowing it. And the effort is not to try too hard or not to try hard enough. It's just, just right. Finding that balance where you're just, there's an ease and there's a relaxed receptivity just allowing things to be as it is. So even if we don't feel comfortable, we can just be comfortable without be, com be comfortable with being uncomfortable, not reacting, not moving, but just being still. Okay, and when you're ready, just opening your eyes. So, any questions? Yes, sir. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.